Hi, this is Robin, the producer for the Bose Nose Show on KRBN Internet News Talk Radio. Due to a scheduling conflict, Jay is unable to make today's program, and so we will be presenting a replay of a previous show. Jay will be back next week at his normal time, 4 p.m. Pacific, on Wednesday, and we hope that you will join us at that time. If you have any questions or comments, please post them on Facebook or send us an email, talk at krbnradio.net. We'll see you next week. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose Nose Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bosevich. And now, here's Jay. Good afternoon, and it's another beautiful day in the Pacific Northwest, and this is the Bose Nose Show coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, Oregon, and today we've got a guest on the Bose Nose Show, and we're going to be talking about some legislation that just passed our state House of Representatives, and I just, before I get into that, I want to remind folks of the call-in number because I know this is sort of a hot topic here. So if you have a question for myself or my guest, you can call us at 646-721-9887 and just press one if you want to get in on the conversation. So my guest today is Sean Gillians, and he is with the Oregon Realtors Association, and he's up there uh, I think he said he was talking to us from his car outside of the uh, Marble Nut House, known as our state capital. And uh, Sean, uh, why don't you real quick tell our audience one what what who who does the Oregon Realtors Association represent, maybe, and then get into what House Bill 2004 is. Sure. Thanks, Jay, and thanks for having me on. Uh, the Oregon Association of Realtors is a trade association for real estate real estate licensees who choose to go a little above and beyond just having a license and choose to actually adhere to a code of ethics with the National Association of Realtors. So there's about 16,000 members in Oregon uh, based throughout the state in most communities. Uh, and a great deal of what I do, I've had the opportunity to represent them for 10 years now. Uh, is advocate for issues uh, at state ledger, legislature in particular around home ownership, increasing access to home ownership, protecting private property rights, uh, which obviously leads us squarely, unfortunately, into House Bill 2004, uh, which is actually now 2004A because they adopted amendments to it in the committee process. Uh, in the House Human Services and Housing Committee. Unfortunately, we feel like perhaps even made the bill worse uh, because some of the provisions became even more complicated and uh, the tailor to a lot of pieces of legislation that we see has uh, what we like to refer to as a trial lawyer clause. So effectively, if there's anything that a tenant feels they were aggrieved for, they have one year to come back and sue their landlord and they're entitled to three months rent plus actual damages there. So when the language becomes even more convoluted in the bill, the fact that a landlord could be on the hook for three months plus actual damages to be determined in court uh, makes the newer version even worse in our opinion. Wow. The now I was itself, reading the, I was reading the engrossed version. Is that the same as the A version? That is. That is, Jay. And, it, you okay. know, I think that we, I can take you through all the problems with it. I think the first one and the one that folks understand the most is rent control. And rent control has proven in many of the cities that exist. I think there's only four states that allow it at this point. Uh, but in many of the cities where it exists, it's, proven to have a number of problems and unintended consequences where it's actually made the housing situation worse. And so rather than calling it rent control now, we're going to call it rent stabilization, uh, because if you call something a different name, then it won't have the same baggage saddle with it previously. So uh, the proponents like to talk about rent stabilization 
but effectively it's a way of controlling or capping rents with marginal increases allowed. Uh, and what the bill does is allow local governments to implement rent control. And it did have a couple of provisions in there about what a rent control program has to look like, but effectively all it says is you have to, the local government has to determine a quote, fair rate of return for landlords on their investment and that there needs to be uh, an appeals process for landlords. Uh, we don't know what fair means and it's not defined in the bill and that would be up to local governments to determine for uh, reference sake, San Francisco, which does have rent control similar to what the proponents are putting forward in 2004, determined that 2.2% was a fair rate of return for an increase in rent for landlords for the next year. As you probably know very well, Jay, uh, our property taxes tend to go up at least 3% a year under our current system, so a landlord would already be behind just based off their property taxes, let alone if they had additional expenses or utilities went up or any of a variety of things on the property. So the rent control provisions, we don't feel like the what the proponents would like to say, the sideboards uh, were very effective at all. Uh, and in fact, we have just as much concern with the engrossed version as we did with the original and the rent control provision on that. The one other thing that it did in an attempt to not stifle development, which is what rent control really does, because investors, particularly in large multifamily projects, have the ability to go to many other states and where the regulatory environment is too stringent, they'll avoid places like Oregon. Um, it, in an attempt to carve that out, they said that new construction would be exempt for five years from rent control provisions. Uh, I would love to see a project that could pencil and only have free market rents for five years. Uh, that is just not even remotely feasible. Uh, and it, it needs to be at least triple that, if not longer than that, for new construction. So really the sideboards that are there are just non-existent. Yeah, and it, it amazes me that that people yeah, it's so easy just to Google the phrase rent control or even rent stabilization and and impact on housing. And you can come up with paper after paper by economists and article after article written by economists about how it's such a bad idea uh, that anyone can think that rent control um, will actually be helpful. I wasn't aware of that provision that allowed the the one year to get back and sue uh, a landlord. It didn't didn't provide the the uh, landlord a year to come back and sue tenants for damages. Uh, I, I think we both know Jay that this bill is about tenants uh, and only about tenants. And unfortunately, there really wasn't the opportunity for landlords to par to participate in the crafting of the amendments on this. Uh, you know, in, in the old days here in Salem, we used to have what was called the Landlord-Tenant Coalition, and they would get together in the interim and they would actually work on issues and there'd be some give and take and they would bring one omnibus bill forward that had some things that the landlords liked and some things that the tenants liked. Uh, and most of us who sort of were on the edge of those issues would not touch that bill because it had been very carefully negotiated. Um, unfortunately, that has completely devolved uh, and you have very aggressive tenants groups, particularly in the Portland area, that are pushing for very um, strong ordinances that tend to favor tenants significantly uh, and tend to be very one-sided. And so we've lost sort of that ability to compromise uh, it's really too bad that the, the Portland process has matriculated to Salem. Yeah, and it is. Um, the one thing we didn't mention in, in talking about this bill yet is the whole provision about um, no cause evictions. And really, it doesn't even quite use the phrase no cause evictions. It talks about somebody that's on a month to month lease that the landlord is required to give 90 days notice to somebody on a month-to-month -month lease 
before they can ask them to, to leave the unit. And in addition, they have to give them up to a month's worth of rent for moving expenses. So it, it's like the bill automatically converted month to month leases, which, you know, according to you know, what the way to describe them, you're only renting for a month at a time into at least a three month lease with in a fourth month as a give back. Um, that that part is really interesting to me, and I, I just um, find that a real you know, difficulty. You know, the whole point of you know when you have somebody go to a month-to-month -month lease or you rent on a month-to-month -month basis, it's with that understanding you're not going to you know that's the lease is you know as a, you're only there for guaranteed a month, um, and that 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 you rented on that condition that that's why you were on a month to month. Otherwise you'd sign a year's lease or a three month lease. You know, if you, if you had to have 90 days notice, I, that one just puzzles me that, that um, they felt the necessity to get in between the landlord tenant relationship and force some kind of long-term notification on a month to month lease basis. Well, and it's, it, it, probably serve us well to go back and look at 2016 uh, where we had a number of housing bills up as well uh, and there was a bit more of a give and take and um, from the new construction side there was some things that developers got in an agreement um, re revolving around capping construction excise taxes and some other things and what tenants got and it seems to have gotten lost in the shuffle is they got an agreement in 2016 that if you're on a month to month tenancy, your rent can't be raised for the first year. That's already in state statute. So if you move in on a month to month, you're guaranteed that your rent, provided that you actually stay current, you're guaranteed that your rent won't go up for a year. And then you have to have 90 days notice for a rent increase as well. That's current law. So that clearly wasn't good enough and now we're going into exactly what you said where effectively your choices are you're either going to have the month-to-month -month, give them the 90-day notice there's very few provisions that you can actually do under the bill to get them out even under a 90-day notice um, some states call it just cause i think the proponents are calling it business purpose on the floor and it's very limited sort of things that you can do there. No cause effectively is eliminated now, except for within the first six months of a tenancy. <clears throat> and the benefit landlords will tell you of no cause eviction is a lot of times you'll have a very problematic tenant that's disturbing a lot of the other residents. You don't necessarily have the time or the proof to go through the judicial eviction process called an FED tends to be costly and timely. And instead you just say, this is not working out. And it's a lot of times due to other tenants who are complaining about that particular tenant and you give them that no cause notice. Under state law right now, in the first 12 months, you can do it with a 30 day notice. After someone's been in their home for, or in their unit for a year, you can do it with 60 day notice. The bill would effectively eliminate all that. Then we get to the next part that you mentioned, which is you're then liable also for one month's rent. There's a little carve out there that if you own four or fewer units, um, then you don't have to pay the one month, one month's relocation. You still have to give the 90 day notice. Um, this coming from the real estate perspective really presents a problem because in the past, we had negotiated with the landlord tenant coalition for individuals that are purchasing a rental property and they want to move into it. So you've got a single family residential home. Someone's had it as an investment. They're selling it to a first time home buyer. The home buyer actually wants to move into the house and live there. If you don't have a no cause notice, there's literally no way to get the tenant out of there as long as they're still paying their rent. So the new purchaser could purchase the home and not get them out. So the bill actually does allow that for a provision that they could move in, but they're going to have to give 90 days notice. So the seller has to wait 
until they actually have an accepted offer. Then they have to give 90 days notice. If they happen to own any other rental units, they have to pay one month provision. And there is zero chance in this current housing market that someone is going to be able to close by saying, oh, by the way, I can't close or get into the home until 90 days have occurred. That's just not a realistic timeline. Right now, people are offering cash or people are offering, you know, 30-day closings. So to say to someone, well, I've got to wait 90 days now um, is really an un unintended consequence, I think, of this bill. Um, but it's just another example of changing significantly our state statute and not talking to folks who are on the landlord or real estate side about what the implications would be for that. Yeah, and that, you know, it surprises me that the legislators, you know, are focused on this because they're concerned about affordable housing and people becoming homeless and the impacts of that. Yet, this isn't really dealing with the reason why there's, you know, such massively increasing rents and, and housing costs in Oregon, and that's that the supply of housing is not meeting the demand for housing. And it seems like they're not working on the supply side. You know, why not try and make more supply available so that there's adequate, you know, um, you know, so we're not at, at or near 100% occupancy on rental units in a town so that folks, you know, feel locked in and they can't find another place um, and rent, you know, it makes it easy for landlords to raise rents. Why not try and do things that actually increase the supply? And this, this does the exact opposite, this bill. It's actually going to make it so folks might decide not to invest in a rental property because of the no cause eviction issues or, the, or because at any moment, you know, you know, they're going to take a loan to to buy that you know rental property to rent it out or to build it and at any moment after they've already gotten into this their local government could decide to pass rent quote stabilization and uh and completely explode their ability to get a return on investment and a lot of you know I, i'm what i'm surprised about is the banking industry didn't jump up and down about this bill because I don't know how they're going to make loans in Oregon knowing that any minute any local government could place rent controls on a property they've loaned money on. Yeah, it the, you got a couple in there and I think uh one of them I honestly don't think coming into this session those of us who weren't really intimately involved with um, sort of the housing agenda of particularly our Speaker of the House really believed that rent control was a real possibility. We have been very concerned all along. Uh, she has made some pretty public proclamations about giving rent control to cities. So we've been concerned, but I think most people just assume there's no way the Oregon legislature could actually go there. The, the data is so clear that this will actually make the problem worse that there's no way that they could. So um, you're absolutely correct in that when you look at other cities that have implemented rent control, it absolutely discourages development. It actually makes the housing supply less because you have fewer multifamily and rental units built. And we're already significantly behind in Oregon due to several things, not the least of which is our land use system, where we just don't have big national builders to the level of other states because our, our land use system is so complex. So you'll see less investment in new construction, and you'll see a significant conversion of rental property into owner-occupied. And that can take place in two forms. Small mom and pa landlords who own one or two houses for their retirement decide, that's it, I'm giving up. I don't want to be in this business anymore, and they sell the property. It then becomes a single-family occupied home that is no longer available for rental. When the city of Portland was going through with their ordinance that requires 
$4,500 relocation. Uh, if you did a rent increase over 10% or did any sort of no-cause eviction, $4,500 to a mom-pa landlord, they're not going to stay in the business. So effectively what they've done is make it virtually impossible for families to find single-family rentals. Uh, they might still have three-bedroom apartments they can find, but you will no longer see single-family rentals. The other conversion of housing stock you'll see, and this plays out in cities throughout city, is rather than building apartments or people who have apartments, turn them into condominiums uh, because the risks are too great that a city is going to implement rent controls on them, make it so difficult with, uh, with uh, no-cause evictions being gone there, and one of the, the sort of side effects of rent control that doesn't get talked about much, and, and I've been reading about it a bit lately, is the administrative cost for cities to implement this because there's a significant amount of enforcement that has to go with it, and you have to build up your bureaucracy to be able to implement rent control programs. Cities don't have, as you know, Jay, a bunch of extra money right now. So what they do is they do a registration program for all rentals and they charge fees on that, which ultimately is going to drive up the cost of rent even further. And for example, one of the cities I saw that has rent control, Santa Monica, spends $4 million a year to enforce their rent control program. So raising the money to be able to supply that bureaucracy is going to only exacerbate the problem. The second thing you said about supply and things, here, here's the, the interesting dynamic that people will say about a housing crisis and what you look at. There's no doubt that housing has gotten incredibly expensive in Oregon, and unfortunately, our salaries have not kept pace with the inflation of housing costs. Uh, now you can look at what are the symptoms of the housing crisis, which is what Salem seems to focus on right now, or you can look at the cause. Uh, and the cause is where you're talking about of what is actually driving that up. And I would argue that one of the significant reasons that we're seeing this is our land use system is now reaching a point where we're seeing the full impact of constraining supply and it's a it's a policy choice that legislators made years ago to protect farm and forest land that's fine that they made that policy decision but they have to look at all the implications of that and when you artificially constrain supply you're going to drive up the cost and when senate bill 100 went into effect and cities were told go draw your urban growth boundary planners at that time were relatively smart and they drew pretty big boundaries in most cities to make sure that they really had an adequate supply. Well, now that we've seen the growth that we've seen in Oregon and we're 40 years in, those boundaries are no longer sufficient. And in many places, they're not even remotely close. Bend, for example, quadrupled in size and never expanded their urban growth boundary. Then when they went on the process of expanding it, they were sued continually by conservationists and they spent millions of dollars to get nowhere to expand their urban growth boundary. Now they finally have a pared down urban growth boundary expansion that they're gonna go forward with, but they've quadrupled in size since that time. Other cities like Woodburn spent 20 years in litigation, spending over a million dollars. Effectively, all of their residential zone land was gone in their urban growth boundary. So when it's all gone, there's no chance that you're going to increase supply to drive down costs some. Um, a city that we love to talk about uh, to our north, the city of Portland, um, their design review process is very cumbersome. Uh, it takes a long time to get through, and developers are tacked on with additional charges later in the process. The perfect example is one of our new uh, developments there that is on the other side of the Burnside Bridge on the east side, big building. Uh, they actually negotiated an agreement with the developer where they'd have affordable units in there. So there's market rate, there's affordable, there were incentives provided to have that affordable. The developer gets almost to the point where they're going to get their certificate of occupancy 
and the city decides that there's not enough mirrory windows on there. And so they refused to give the certificate and the developer was saddled with $300,000 in additional costs because the design didn't re reach the level of the planning that they wanted for the architectural mirror of the windows. So when you have those sort of things in the way of supply, we just can't get out of the way of ourselves right now. And rather than focusing on how do we increase supply, unfortunately, the legislature has taken the exact opposite tack. We have been trying to push bills down here in the, in the 2016 session. We got some land use reforms that will be helpful in that, but it really is sad that that's fallen by the wayside. And, you know, you and I have spoken for, what, half an hour now. We haven't even talked about home ownership and the problems that people are facing in that. We're just focused on the 40% of the state or 38%, depending on what you're looking at, that are currently renters. And what are we going to do to impact them? And unfortunately, I would argue, we're going to make the situation worse. Yeah, and I would agree. And if uh, you disagree with, with Sean or myself, you can give us a call at 646-721-9887. And just press one, and that lets us know you want to get in on the conversation uh, on our board here, because uh, people do call in just to listen on their phones sometimes if they don't have an internet connection available. Um, again, this is the Bose Nose Show, and I'm your host, Jay Bozovich, West Lane County Commissioner, and I'm speaking with Sean Gillians of the Oregon Realtors Association. And we've been talking about House Bill 2004, which passed the House of Representatives yesterday by a 31 to 27 vote. And I was a little disappointed to see that almost all the Lane County um, uh, Democrat representatives voted for it, with the exception of Caddy McEwen out of Coos Bay, who represents part of my district in the Florence area, um, who voted against it. So I was happy to see that there were, it wasn't a complete um, party line vote, that there were de defections. Um, so maybe there's some hope that the Senate will um, come to their senses and, and stop this thing before it causes the damage it's going to do. But uh, you were starting to get into, to, you know, just home ownership and some of the issues going on there. Is there is there uh, bills up there that are floating around that might actually hurt um, owner occupied housing as well as this uh, rental um, uh, housing, uh, you know, bill that that we were just talking about? Oh, well, funny you should ask, Jay. Uh... In a similar series, which is in what we usually call the speaker series, so the Speaker of the House reserves the first 10 bills uh, in the series. So it starts in with the 2000, House Bill 2000, and goes through 2010, typically. There's House Bill 2006. Uh, House Bill 2006 would severely curtail or eliminate the mortgage interest deduction for a number of homeowners in Oregon. Wow. Uh, the bill as currently drafted, if you were a single person making $100,000 a year, you would no longer get the mortgage interest deduction uh, on your Oregon state taxes. And um, there are a number of areas in the Portland region in particular where $100,000 equates to basically what you could qualify for a loan on, on a median home. Uh, we're not talking about mansions in the hills. We're talking about the median home value, which is north of 400,000 now in Portland. Uh, and a lot of the proponents in coming in to testify said that, well, you know, someone making that much money doesn't need any help purchasing a home. The mortgage interest deduction has been in the federal tax code since the inception of the tax code. It's designed to incentivize home ownership uh, and make it so that it's more attainable for people. The biggest wealth creator for individuals in the middle class is home ownership where they build equity in their home and it really is sad to see something that we've sort of seen as the foundation of home ownership be under attack this session um, but unfortunately that's exactly what house bill 2006 does it also says that if you're if you make under a hundred thousand dollars a year as a single filer 
then you're capped at $15,000 in interest. And when we looked at sort of some of the numbers, that would be about a $350,000 mortgage uh, would generate 300 or would generate 15,000 in interest. So anyone above a $350,000 home would start to see a diminishment of what they could write off on their taxes. Um, as home values are going higher and higher, it seems very counterintuitive that the legislature would look to uh, to make it more difficult for people to own a home. And one of the points we've been stressing this this session in Salem, and there have been a number of bills on mortgage interest deduction or your ability to write off your property taxes on your deduction, is if we're going to say that there is a housing crisis and this is a societal problem, why is it that the legislature is simply looking to homeowners or landlords to solve this problem? If it's truly an issue that all of society cares about, then this is something that we should look at our general fund that is at record high levels, actually invest in housing. Uh, and that is something that has been scarce in Salem. We, other than some bonding in the last biennium, we have not invested in housing at the state level, other than a document recording fee that was actually supported by and initiated by the Oregon Association of Realtors in 2007, or actually it was 2009. Uh, which dedicates money from mortgage documents being recorded at the local level to affordable housing options, including homeless problems uh, going forward. So, uh, you know, it, it really is sad that we don't seem to have voices in Salem. And there are actually, I should say, there's some great bills that have been put forward uh, on land use, on incentives for home ownership. Um, those bills just don't seem to be getting the same level of traction uh, in this particular legislature. There is one positive. I can't just be all negative, Jay. Uh, there is a bill called the Oregon First Time Homebuyers Act. Uh, it would allow for individuals to save money tax-free or pre-tax if they're taking it from their paychecks, uh, similar to a college savings plan. Uh, so the individual could put it into a dedicated bank account. The individual could do up to $5,000 a year or joint $10,000 a year. They could save up to $50,000 for a down payment. That's for first-time homebuyers. Uh, so we're really looking at millennials who are getting to the point where maybe living in an apartment in downtown isn't as exciting or they're getting married and they want to settle down and actually purchase a home. Uh, they could then use this first-time homebuyer savings account uh, and put money in tax-free, and then they would take that money out, use it for a down payment, and they could be on the road to homeownership uh, with all those benefits that we talked about before. That's Senate Bill 845. Uh, it has a bipartisan list of sponsors on it, uh, and hopefully folks have heard about it and will contact their legislator about supporting Senate Bill 845, the first-time homebuyers act. Yeah, yeah. But unfortunately, they're going to balance that, you know, where those those kids in that that apartment in Portland are actually going to have to use that that fifty thousand dollars to buy the the condo conversion as the building gets converted after they pass House Bill two thousand four. <laughs> so it's sad. I, I think I think you're true. It, you know that that's going to be the median condo that was converted, and that would be twenty percent down. So yeah. Yep. Uh, and, and yeah, it's just um, and then you get into, you know, I, I have friends in, in San Diego, you know, where they're dealing with California and rent control and all that. And they're in a, in a condo um, versus a, uh, um, you know, being in, in, a, in a home and their problem there is not rent increasing. It's their condo fees of just they skyrocket year after year. You, know, you start having to take care of that big building. Um, it gets to be a, a fair amount of money to, to, to take care of those buildings. Um, yeah. And that, I mean, Jay, that's, that's the perfect example of why rent control is so problematic as well, 
because landlords are going to have those costs associated regardless if it's a condominium units or if it's multifamily rentals. And if you cap their ability to recover those costs by having rent control, what you see in many other cities is you just don't get the maintenance that you should and the units start to deteriorate because the landlord simply can't afford to take on those massive projects. And we heard about it on the House floor where legislators themselves who owned a couple of units, a tenant could do fourteen, fifteen thousand $15,000 worth of damage on a single unit when you get one bad tenant and yet your rent increase is capped at 2.5% or 2.2% the next year. It's financially impossible to ever recover that on that unit or if you have a roof or any sort of thing like that um it really when you when you start having the government overlaying these regulations that just make it infeasible for it that's what you're going to have you're going to have a condo conversion that people are going to have you know significant repair costs down the line that are all going to be eaten up in condo fees yeah well we've got uh jeff on the line who has a question for us Sure. Jeff, uh, Hi, you Jay, have a question uh, for, for Sean also? Yeah. Uh, Jay, thanks for uh, sending the email out that you're going to have this topic on. I got that email last night. Um, so the wife and I have uh, two rental houses here in Florence, and we're going to be going and getting a third. And, and what we do is we go out and we buy a house that would normally go right back on the market and we turn it around and we actually put it up for rent. And rentals are in really short supply here in Florence. And I'm reading this thing mm -hmm. about you're maximizing at four units and then they start doing some, you go into another category. Um, could you just um, elaborate on going past four units? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Sure, and, I'll, and I'll, thanks I'll for, try and deal with that. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for your your investment in property and putting it back in, in the rental market. That's critical, as you say, especially along the Oregon coast where housing is in such short supply. The really the only benefit you have in owning under four units, you're still going to be subject to all the other provisions of the bill. So your no cause no no cause terminations will be gone. Uh, you could be subject to rent control if if Florence decides to implement that or Lincoln County or Lane County, uh, what you don't have to do under the bill, if you have four units or fewer, is pay the one month moving costs if you're using a, a business purpose eviction. And, and those are very limited. They're just for situations like you're doing significant repairs and it's not safe for the tenant to be in there or you're doing significant repairs and the home is inhabitable so you're basically you know having a turnover of the property if you do that and you you give them the 90-day notice that you have you don't have to pay them one month's rent if you have more than four units you're going to have to pay them uh one month's rent on top of that in addition you should know that um, you also if you're using one of those renovation exclusions you have to offer it back to the previous tenant before you could offer it to anyone else under the bill okay um uh wife had a question um I'll, I'll let her come back into the room um i was wondering um what do you see as the these costs that may be incurred uh with the cities uh having some sort of bureaucracy uh over us um in, in imposing this uh, rent control. Any idea what that would be? Yeah, so uh, the, the example I cited was Santa Monica, which has 28,000 units total there. Uh, so larger than, than certainly what we're dealing with on the coast, but their budget is $4 million a year to administer that. And that's charged, they charge landlords a registration fee uh, to cover that cost and any of these sort of administrative costs or bureaucracies that are put in place due to rent control will be entirely funded by landlords. So you will certainly see a registration fee 
and that registration fee will vary based on the number of full-time employees that they hire for enforcement and for the record keeping on there. Uh, so, you know, a, a city with a relatively small population base or number of units, your registration fee is going to be pretty significant it's once you start bringing on full-time public employees. Well, this is preposterous. You know, I, I believe it or not, I've actually written into my uh, rental contracts uh, any unforeseen government fences or, uh, you know, unforeseen government um, costs that would cause the rent to go up. Oh, you know, you, yeah. the people that we have running for us, I, I like to keep it just lower than, you know, what other people would have and keep these people in as long as possible and, and provide a, a really super house they can be proud of. And these these um, these costs just drive a wedge between the landlords and the tenants, and it's just disgusting. I want to thank you so much for, uh, for representing us and for doing all your hard work. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Jeff. Uh, thank you for calling, Jeff. So... Um, that was Jeff from Florence that called in, and if you want to call in, just dial 646-721-9887 and press 1, and that lets Robin, uh, my producer and call screener extraordinaire, know that you want to get in on the conversation. So, Sean, I just did a little math. If they have 28,000 units in Santa Monica and it's costing them $4 million a year to implement their rent control and eviction control systems that they have, that's $143 per unit a year. There we go. So hey, thank you for doing add, the math. I, I, couldn't, add, I couldn't take my phone away to do it. <laughs> yeah, that, that's more than $10 a month of rent just to pay for the rent control administration. Yeah, and that, so, you know, that's just, a broader base to spread it out over, Jay. So, you know, it, it, seriously, if you're yeah. talking about a smaller governmental entity who's bringing on a couple of FTE with um, the PERS and the PEB benefits that are going there, it's going to be a significant expense for landlords. Yeah, and, and I see, you know, communities like Ashland and Corvallis that, you know, will jump right in on this rent control idea, um, which are very small, not very big communities, but have that the uh, city councils that lean that direction are just going to end up hammering the landlords with fees to pay for their, the administration of the program. Yep. And, and ultimately the college students that live in those towns are going to be paying for that administration at the city level through their rents. Well, and that, that it's an interesting point that you raise on that too, about, you know, m the more disadvantaged folks and, the program is designed to help them, and actually the evidence sort of shows the exact opposite happens. Uh, one, you're going to be driving up the cost, so it's harder for the landlord to absorb. But two, we sort of talked about the maintenance issues and, and the concerns about the bad tenant who causes significant amount of damage ends up happening because landlords can't recover the costs in that, is that they start charging significantly higher deposits because there's no other way to ensure that they can recoup the costs from damage created on their properties. And so the people who are trying to move into these rent controlled units can't come up with the deposits necessary because we've made it so difficult for the landlords. So I think back to my time living on campus at U of O um, back in the dark ages. I mean, we were scraping together the money for three or four guys that live in an apartment on campus. We certainly didn't have, a significant deposit that we could put down. And now if you're talking about doubling or tripling those deposits to ensure that landlords are protected, there's no way we would ever get those units. Yeah, particularly knowing that your tenant can sue you within a year of, of exactly. leaving the unit. Yeah, yeah. and that you I have mean, that, this and that you have that hang, hanging over your head for a year afterwards. Yeah. Which kind of you know gets back to you know what bank in their right mind would loan money to somebody to develop a rental unit um, development you know lar you know a larger complex um, knowing if 
Oregon law allows that, that, you know, these tenants can come back to them up to a year later and there's all that liability and possibility of default on, on the, uh, yeah. the borrower's part, it's just going to dry up the, the ability to build new units, which is what is really the lack of new units is what's causing the rental crisis in the first place. So, well, Jay, I am so I'm approaching the hour of having to run back into my favorite place, the state capitol. Uh, there was one other provision that I think has not gotten a lot of attention in the bill that I wanted to point out to folks. Uh, and this is something, honestly, I had not heard of anything going forward like this, but it actually requires for fixed term tenancies. So let's say you have a one year lease, which is pretty common in the rental market. It requires at the end of that one year lease that the landlord either offer a new lease or automatically convert it to month to month tenancy and subjects the 90 day notice provisions, the payment of relocation expenses, et cetera. It requires it. It's not a matter of what used to be contract law where you would say, all right, you have a one month lease and then under our contract, we'll roll it into month to month. But if we choose not to go that route, we can both just say, no, you had one year. Under this provision of the bill, all tenancies that are term automatically either have to be a new fixed term or month to month at the discretion of the tenant and only the tenant. The tenant gets to choose. Do I, ooh, do I want a month to month going forward or do I want another lease? The landlord has no opportunity to extinguish it unless there's some for cause reason uh, that they can then go through the FED eviction process for. Wow. Wow. That, that, that's just, that's the icing on the cake there, Sean. Well, I really appreciate your time and expertise today. Um, I know you've got to get back in the building because it's, it's that crazy time of year for folks that are working up there. I, I spend a lot of time up there myself, so maybe I'll run into you tomorrow. All right. Yes. We'll um, look for you, Jay. <laughs> okay. Well, have a great rest of your day and thank you for coming on the Bose Nose Show. Um, and the show will be available on archive tomorrow if you want to go back and, and link it to whatever page and let your friends listen. Great. Thanks so much, Jay. All right. Thank you, Sean. All right. Bye. So that was Sean Gillian's. Bye bye. That was Sean Gillian's with the uh, Oregon Realtors Association, and uh, that was a pretty chilling conversation about House Bill 2004. And I wasn't even aware of all of the aspects of it, and and just the unintended consequences it's going to have on the ability to actually construct and increase the supply of housing in Oregon is just uh, unbelievable to me. Um, and again, you know, Sean's had to go back into uh, the Capitol there to take care of business. But if you want to talk about um, rent control or no cause evictions or any of the other aspects of House Bill 2004, you can give me a call at 646-721-9887 and just press one. And you know, you can email me uh, at talk at krbnradio.net. And uh, you can even do that between shows. Like if you're listening to one of my archive shows uh, or this show on archive and you, you wanna comment on it or you know send me a question that I might be able to deal with on an upcoming show, just email at talk at krbnradio.net. And we're also on Facebook, um, you know, if you, Get into Facebook and put KRBN Radio up there. I'm sure you'll find our page. Uh, I'm also on there personally. Put Jay Bozovich in there. You'll find me or my my county commissioner page. Um, and then you can personally message us uh, through Facebook, and we'll respond to those too. So uh, I've been talking a lot about rent control and all that. I never really quite got into some of the economic stuff that I found online when I first you know, heard that this bill had been passed and I wanted to try and, you know, see what economists had to say. And I got to a site that's um, an economic um, site and it 
and it's, uh, it's a pretty, pretty interesting site. Uh, it's the uh, Library of Economics and Liberty site. Um, and they've got an article on there about rent control or, or uh, posting about it uh, by uh, a Walter Block. And uh, partway down into it has the effects of rent control there. And it basically says this. Economists are virtually unanimous in concluding that rent controls are destructive. In 1990, a poll of 464 economists was published, and 93% of U.S. respondents agreed, either completely or with provisos, that a ceiling on rents reduces the quality and quantity of housing available. Similarly, another study in Canada had 95% of Canadian economists agreeing with that statement. So when you have more than nine out of 10 economists agreeing on something, and if you ever put 10 economists in a room and ask them to try and agree on something, it's like lawyers. They'll all say it depends or something like that. That's their most famous statement when you talk to an economist. Well, it depends. You know, to get nine out of 10, better than nine out of 10 agreeing that rent control is destructive and will actually reduce the quantity and quality of housing available. Why in the world is our state legislature even thinking about allowing rent control in the state of Oregon when there's a housing shortage. And Jay, if I can jump in for a sec. Sure. Well, I was just thinking too, uh, um, listening to what Sean was saying, is that there are, there are people that are getting into their retirement age that have been thinking about buying houses and renting them to supplement their Social Security or other income. And with this coming up, um, I would be very hesitant in June in getting into rental housing. Yeah, it it just it's you know a lot of people are using you know because of the low returns in the market um, for safe investments. You know, people think real estate and going with rental properties has been a safe investment over the last you know five to to eight years when when you know the Fed the Federal Reserve is artificially depressed um, interest returns on certificates of deposit and all that, where your principal is protected and people have always um, thought of as real estate as fairly principal protected, except for, you know, the 2008 bubble it being the exception. Um, so there's a lot of senior citizens that are investing or have investments in rental properties as retirement income. And this is just you know, putting those folks in a real bind. And, and like uh, Sean was mentioning, those folks are more likely to sell those back into the market as owner-occupied, and um, they'll disappear from the rental uh, portfolio, which is part of what these economists are saying. And, you know, and it's interesting, this isn't a bunch of, like, free market economists that are Milton Friedman, you know, Frederick Hayek, um, you know, Austrian school kind of guys. This includes folks that are Keynesian and, and literally socialist type guys. Um, there are quotes here from one uh, a Swedish economist who's also a socialist, uh, Asser Lindbeck, says that in many cases, rent control appears to be the most efficient technique presently known to destroy a city, except for bombing. I mean, that is just... It's also kind of interesting, too, when you look at the HPT 2004, under the category of fiscal impact and revenue impact, it says, uh, as minimal fiscal impact and no revenue impact. Minimal fiscal impact to whom? <laughs> I guess, you know, when they write those, it's about state government. It might be minimal fiscal, fiscal impact to state government, but I think what people are missing is it's going to be a huge fiscal impact to... Uh, renters and and landlords which ultimately is going to have a fiscal impact on the state because they get income tax on rental income and uh, they also um, are not looking at what it's going to cause local governments that choose to implement any sort of rent control or um, 
rent stabilization program, just the cost of running those programs is going to be hugely demanding on local government, as, as we were talking about with Sean. So uh, I just, you know, I, I scratch my head to, to why um, folks that I think of as relatively intelligent people, um, you know, Representative Nancy Nathanson, who I find to be a, a pretty intelligent person and usually fairly business friendly for a Democrat, voted in support of this bill. Um, John Lively, who you know was an economic development um, professional uh, working here in Lane County at one point, um, you know, was doing economic development work, voted for the bill. Um, how they can look at what economists say about these things and then choose to support that. Is it just about supporting their um, Speaker of the House and voting as a good Democrat, or are they actually, you know, really looking at the bill and understanding the unintended consequences and, and still voting yes on it? Um, either way, it, it's surprising to me for, for a couple of those local legislators. There's several that don't surprise me because I think that they're, you know, economically uh, somewhat illiterate, but, uh, you know, some of those folks that voted for it, um, I shake my head a little bit. So we got a, a, about four minutes here left in the Bose Nose Show. So we do still have time for another call. If you want to get in at 646-721-9887 and press one lets us know you want to get in on the conversation. We've been talking about rent control and no cause evictions and various other aspects of House Bill 2004 that passed the Oregon House of Representatives yesterday by a 31 to 27 vote. Uh, no Republicans voted for the bill. Um, some Democrats actually voted against it. So it it's, uh, was a very close vote. Um, and it moves on to the Senate now and, and uh, who knows where it'll go from there, but yeah, there are a couple bills up there that kind of just make make me shake my head instead of working on the, the real issue, which is how can we get more housing built in Oregon so that the prices will stay low and the rents will stay low. Uh, they're going to try and monkey around and do price controls and, um, you know, limit uh, landlords' ability to uh, uh, deal with their tenants uh, you know, thinking that's somehow or another going to increase the supply of rental properties and lower the cost. Uh, it just makes me shake my head. Um, interesting, though, uh, off the topic a little bit, the Register Guard finally seems to be on my page where they're talking about needing the state to control cost on their editorial page in health insurance, something we talked about on this program months back when the governor first proposed her budget that didn't do anything on the cost side and only talked about punishing cuts um, that were unacceptable to most Oregonians. So it was good to see the Register Guards finally come around after about four months and realizes the state has a spending problem in that they have absolutely no control over their health insurance benefits with their employees and that we are one of the top states in the U.S. in cost of health benefits per employee where Lane County has actually been addressing that issue for years now. Since way back in 2011, we started really aggressively addressing it. So good to see the Register Guards getting on that same page. Um, I hope uh, folks found this show to be entertaining. I was glad to have Sean Jillians from the Real Realtors on today talk about House Bill 2004 and the the unintended consequences of rent control and uh, getting involved in just punishing landlords in the landlord. Uh, but that's going to be about it for the Bose Nose Show for today. We'll be back next week, hopefully after we have picked a new East Lang County Commissioner. And there may be a chance that I have to delay the show next week, depending on how long our board meeting goes as we're trying to make that decision. So hope to see you next week. And thank you for listening to Bo's Nose Show. And uh, we'll talk to you next week.